All right. Well, today, my friends, we have the pleasure of starting a new book, uh, which is always a lot of fun, uh, 13-chapter book, the book of Nehemiah. So I expect for the next uh, two, three months or so, we'll be in this particular book, and we'll, we'll see what the Lord has for us. Uh, the book of Nehemiah is the last book, chronologically, time-wise, uh, in the Old Testament, that, that history, it's a history book uh, of the Jewish people. And today we're going to begin that book, and we'll have an intro, and we'll look at a few verses in it. Um, but again, let me just put some things into historical context. Uh, the book of Nehemiah, particularly as it relates to the book of Ezra, which we have just completed. Now you may recall from our study of the book of Ezra that it begins with a dating of sorts. And so verse 1 of the book said in Ezra, In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, unbelieving king, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, and that he also put that into writing. Well, that's Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. And as Ezra chapter 1 went on, the next few verses or so, it explains what that proclamation was. And that proclamation was essentially that the people, the Jewish people, who had been in Babylonian captivity, now remember, Cyrus is the king of Persia, Persia conquered Babylon, that that new king of Persia has essentially said, the Jews, you can go home if you want to go home. Anyone that would like to go can go back there. You still have to be loyal to me, but you can do so from a distance, if you will. And that is the proclamation. So the Jews, 50,000 of them, return, begin to return to Jerusalem. That takes place roughly around the year 536 B.C. And as we considered, it was led by two men, Zerubbabel, who was the governor, a guy by the name of Joshua, who was the high priest, and they led about 50,000 Jews from slavery from exile back to Jerusalem so that they can sort of restart things, rebuild their lives, if you will. Now, the first thing that group of people decide they're going to do is get to work on the temple area. And the temple, we know it's a building. There's a portion of it that's a building. But the most important thing, the must-have, otherwise you might as well not even have a temple, the must-have is to have a brazen altar. So that's the first thing they do. That's not even in the building. It's outside in front of the building. And the first thing they do is they erect this large, roughly 10 by 10 shaped brazen altar where the sacrifices will be made. That we read in Ezra chapter 3. It says, when the seventh month came, they set the altar in its place because fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered the burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. That takes place on the brazen altar. Shortly thereafter in the book, they begin work on the temple. We read about that in Ezra chapter uh, 4. But we saw, sadly, that work had to stop on the temple also. As the enemies and the opposition kind of come against the children of Israel, there's a questioning of what are their motives, what are they trying to do, are they trying to rebel, what are their intentions, all these things. And work was forced to cease. And as in our study of Ezra, we saw that that ceasing, if you will, the stopping of the work on the temple, this partially built building there that was coming back to life, that that lasted for a period of about 15 years. And the Jews, it seems, in our study, they just sort of gave up. And they said, well, it's, I guess it's never going to happen. And you have this partially built building sitting there and the weeds growing and so on and so forth, year after year after year, until 15 years have gone by and the Jews have just sort of said, oh, well, it was a good idea. It would have been pretty cool. And they just sort of settled in there. Well, we looked. And there were two prophets that come on the scene, the prophet Haggai, the prophet Zechariah. This is around the year 520 B.C. And these two guys, they say, no, we can do this. 
and they stir the people, and the people say, you know what, we can and we should be. Why do we allow ourselves to drift in that way? And they get to work, and they begin rebuilding that temple. And this time they had the permission of a new king. Because remember, the work was forced to stop. Cyrus said they could do it, but then the work was forced to stop. But a new king has come on the place, and that is a guy by the name of Darius. And in Ezra chapter 6 we read that Darius said, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. And Darius says, get to it. You have permission. That's 520 B.C. Then we have a break in the action. Between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's a period of 60 years that goes by. The temple is rebuilt and all these things, but there's this period that goes by, and what we saw was that there was a period where the people drifted in their commitment to the Lord, in their vigor for their spirituality. And that's when Ezra comes on the scene, the one who the book bears his name. And Ezra returns to Jerusalem to serve as both sort of the governor, he's been given permission by the Persian king, but also the high priest of the Jewish people. And he returns to Jerusalem roughly around the year 460 B.C. Again, granted permission, this time by a different king, our third king in the book, this time a fellow by the name of Artaxerxes. And Ezra is going to come to Jerusalem, and he's going to find a people that had drifted spiritually, and God was going to use him to wake the people up from that spiritual stupor and help them return to the Lord uh, and return to their commitment to the Lord. And that's the material that we covered in chapter 7 through chapter 10 of the book of Ezra. That, those four chapters cover a period of about five years. So if Ezra returns in 460 B.C., and his, the time he's there in the book recorded for us is about five years, that brings us to about 455 B.C. And the book of Nehemiah will pick up. You're like, good, I thought we were in Nehemiah. You know? The book of Nehemiah is going to pick up where the book of Ezra leaves off. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew uh, Bible, what we would call our Old Testament, these two books are actually lumped together as one book. And so rather than it being a 10-chapter book, a 13-chapter book, it's a 23-chapter book, and they just kind of continue on in that particular way. And as we saw in the book of Ezra, there were gaps between certain chapters. There's a 15-year gap, a 60-year gap. Uh, and now, between the last chapter of Ezra and the first chapter of Nehemiah, we have a 10-year gap that takes place. Which means this, that the start of this book is 445 B.C., or right around there. It could be 444 or something like that. And so that's the start of this particular book. As a matter of fact, we have the ability to date the book looking at historical uh, records as well, based on the first verse of the book. So if you look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital. Of course, you have to ask yourself, the 20th year of what? What are we talking about? What are we referring to? We're referring to the 20th year of the king. And the king at that time period was Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes' time frame, his administration was 465 to 424. And so the 20th year of that would put us around the year 445. Now it also, and we'll see it next week, it actually puts us in the 444 because you know he didn't necessarily begin on January 1, if you want to think of it, the middle of the year. But the 20th uh, year for him is going to put us right around the year 445 B.C. That's the time frame of things. Okay. Now, the book of Ezra, it dealt with the rebuilding of the temple. The book of Nehemiah is going to be 
dealing with the rebuilding of the city as a whole. All right, so the temple, key point of the entire city, certainly so. That is done, that is up and running, and the people are returning to it, and so on. But now, the book of Nehemiah is going to deal with the rebuilding of the walls that are around that city. The book of Ezra, you could look at it as, it dealt with the temple and worship. And that's sort of the spiritual aspects of things. The book of Nehemiah is going to deal with the walls and the city. And that's sort of the everyday issues of life. And I appreciate that particular order. Because one of the things that I've come to discover in my life is when I'm in a right place spiritually, then the everyday issues, they just sort of work themselves out. And I'm not, I'm not saying that everything goes perfectly. The bills still need to be paid. In my case, the lawnmower still doesn't work from time to time. It still snows on Sundays, and you've got to deal with all that. You still have issues that are going to come up. But what I'm talking about is when you're in a right place spiritually, then suddenly you find yourself in the right frame of mind to deal with those things that are inevitably going to come up. And so the spiritual, then the practical, if you want to think of it that way. There's two key themes in the book of Nehemiah. And then there's sort of an overarching theme that ties the whole book together. The two key themes would be this, prayer and work. Kind of ironic. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, they're having a season of prayer, and that's why he's teaching Nehemiah, because it's all whatever. And you're going to get that voice. What's that voice, dear? Oh, you got that voice. You know, I have a voice that, of people that are bugging me. And at dinner, I say, oh, she said this. And Robin's like, there's that voice again. And I know, I know, there's that voice. Uh, but some are going to think, wow, they, they put it all together, and those guys are such good planners. The Lord is a good planner. We planned to do the book of Nehemiah a long time ago before the season of prayer, but it coincides perfectly with our study of this particular book because there's two key themes in the book, prayer and work. And then there's this overarching theme is that someone needs to take leadership of the people as they are doing those two things of praying and working. And in our book, that someone is going to be Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the guy that is going to lead the people into this next stage of the restoration of the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. And as you're going to see in, your, in our book, he does a very good job at it. He does an excellent job. He's an, an, excellent, he's an excellent leader. Nehemiah is a guy that gets things done, and he does so in a way that people want to join him in that process. Nehemiah is a man of great vision, and he's a man of great influence that people want to follow. He doesn't have to force anyone to follow him. People want to follow him. And in fact, during our study, we're going to return again and again to this idea or these examples of Nehemiah and the godly example of leadership that he sets for us, and then we'll make application to our lives as well. So I do think the book of Nehemiah is a very practical book of study for any of us that are leaders in one way or another. And remember, leadership is about influence. And we all want to be people that are influencing others toward good. And so in that sense, all of us can learn some lessons from this particular book. There's one other fun fact about Nehemiah that I share with my kids the other day at, at dinner, and that is that Nehemiah is the shortest person in the Bible. As his name indicates, it's Nehemiah. Yeah. That, that's what they said. They said the same thing. Yeah, they didn't like that either. <laughs> Anyhow, okay. Let me make uh, just one final point of application, now that I've lost you, uh, before we jump into verse-by-verse verse study of the book. Uh, and that is that the book should speak to us throughout, or it will speak to us throughout, about our charge as Christians 
to keep ourselves separate from the ways of the world. Jerusalem, which is the setting of this book, that was God's place of special privilege and favor throughout history, really, and I believe it continues to be. Jerusalem is the city that has been referred to by some as the center of the universe, the place where God chose for his presence to uniquely dwell. Jerusalem was the home of the people of God. And it was the walls that were around this holy city that protected the privileged people that were fortunate enough to call it home. Moreover, the walls, they provided the people with a buffer of separation from the ways of the world that were so prevalent around them. And sadly, those walls had lied broken down or lay broken down for over 150 years. 150 years. And it caused the people that were living there and these returning Jews that were there now for almost 100 years to live with the constant threat of attack and the absence of peace that such barriers were designed to provide. And as we continue our study, what we'll do is we'll make reference to the way in which the walls that were established, that, that are established in our own lives, so we're going to make a connection there, that walls that are designed to protect us and separate us from the influences of the world around us, how they may have fallen into disrepair in our lives as well. And where portions of the walls, maybe they develop breaches. Those walls that we put up to kind of protect ourselves as we're seeking to walk with the Lord have developed breaches or the gates have been destroyed. And because of that, and if that is happening in our lives, is it any wonder that some of the ways of the world have begun to move in and take up residence in our lives? And what the study of the book of Nehemiah is going to provide for us is an opportunity to consider how those walls may be restored again and that the place of peace can once again be established in our Christian walks with the Lord. So that's the intro to the book. So why don't we jump into and consider a portion of the first chapter today. We're going to look at the first six verses today. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Now the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now our study begins in the month of Chislev. We already read that it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the month of Chislev. That's in the, the Jewish calendar, the Hebrew calendar. That puts it roughly around our November and December of the calendar year. We also see in verse 1 that the lead character is going to be this guy, Nehemiah, that is situated at, at the start of the book in the city of Susa. We mentioned Susa in our study of the book of Ezra. Susa was sort of the winter capital uh, or palace of the kings of Persia. It was a little bit warmer than sort of the, the everyday one that was initially in Babylon there. And so Susa, some of your versions will say Shushan there. And so he's off in this particular city of Susa. He's gonna, you'll see that he works for the king. And while he is there, he's approached by a group of Jewish men. They have come from Jerusalem, and one of them in particular is his brother, a guy by the name of Hanani. And this group of men, or his brother, one of them, informs him that Jerusalem continues to remain broken down and that the gates have been destroyed. And what that means is, in that statement, is that the city is completely indefensible. What it means is that an enemy people can just come in at any time 
and attack the people or seize the treasures or really come in and do anything they want. And more significantly than that, what it means is that, any, uh, that they could come in at any time and seize anyone that they want. And so there's never peace within the heart of the people that live in that city. Because every night when they go to, go to sleep, the doors remain wide open. And anyone can come in and can attack them. And so every night they have to be on their guard. There's no peace within the city because the walls are broken down. It's certainly not a situation which is going to lead to a sense of home sweet home. Because it's not home sweet home. You are always on your guard while you're there. And the people are living in an unwalled city in constant stress and constant tension. And you can imagine the scenario of being constantly on edge, never able to be at peace. Now the next point is, it's important to take notice that it was Nehemiah that first inquires about Jerusalem and the people of Judah. Look at verse 2, the second portion. It says, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jews, Jerusalem. Now it's probable that this group of men that are coming are going to bring up Jerusalem at some point in the conversation. But the reality is, is that Nehemiah beats them to the punch. And that is an indicator of where his heart and his mind is. His body may be in Susa, one of the most beautiful and opulent cities of the ancient world, but his heart and his mind are in Jerusalem. And so he inquires about Jerusalem. And sadly, the response that he has given isn't exactly what he was hoping for. Look at verse 3. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So they report that the remnant who survived in exile, that they're in trouble. He, he goes on to say in the verse that they're in great difficulty and great shame. One of the things that stands out to me in this particular verse is what he refers to the people of Jerusalem as. He calls them there in the verse, you may recall, he called them survivors, which is anything but what God wants his people to be known as. God doesn't want us, his people, to merely survive in the city of peace. But his constant desire is that his people would thrive in the city of peace. But because the walls are destroyed and the gates have been burned, the people instead are living in constant fear and persistent attack. The city walls, as I mentioned, they've been broken down now for as many as 150 years. Babylon first came in and attacked in 605 B.C., we're talking about 445 B.C. So for over 150 years, these cities, at least in portions, and then eventually all of them, pretty much, have lied in ruin. And there were other attempts to rebuild the walls in past times that had failed. We saw that in Ezra chapter 4. And disappointingly, rather than giving the effort another go, the Jews just gave up, and they settled into a life of broken down walls. And rebuilding the walls for them, it seems, has become too high of an obstacle that wasn't worth the effort anymore, and so they just gave up. They couldn't, they couldn't do it, so they said, you know what, just let it be as it is. There's an interesting verse in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22. It's unrelated to our story necessarily, but there is a parallel that I see there. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8, we read, When you build a new house, this is the law of Moses being given to the people, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now, a parapet, King James, it says a battlement, is a low wall at the edge of a balcony or roof. If, if we're talking about a roadway, we'd be talking about something like a guard rail so you don't go off the edge of the cliff or something like that. And in the Middle Eastern culture, the roof of their home would be a flat roof, and it would essentially serve for the people 
as kind of a patio or even a living room or the rec room or whatever. This would be the place in the cool of the morning and the cool of the evening that the people would go and they would gather and the neighbors would come and you'd hang out in that particular place. And so Moses gives this instruction, knowing that the people are going to enjoy that place with their families and young kids and all that. And he gives this instruction that when you build that at your house, you must put a little wall around the top of it there so no one accidentally stumbles off. It's in order to protect anyone that might go up on that roof. And in order to do that, the Jews were instructed to build these little guardrails. And in fact, they were required to do so so much so that if a person did fall off because they didn't build one, that they would be held responsible for that. In the same way, the walls about the city were there, to, they were put in place to protect the people and to keep the people safe. And it was the responsibility of the citizens of Jerusalem to see to it that those walls were erected. And sadly, though the walls remained broken down for 150 years, nobody seemed to care about it. And they let anything just come into their lives and attack them as a people. Nehemiah is about to show them that they should care. Now, by way of application, I'd like, like to just pose a couple of questions to each of us today. First question is this. Have the walls, which were previously designed to protect you and your family, have they begun to deteriorate or be broken down? Do you remember when you first came to the Lord? And, you know, people spoke into your life, certainly the Holy Spirit spoke into your life, and you, you, you began to develop some convictions about things. You began to realize, you know what, that's really not good for me. Your friend invites you to that place, you're like, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm busy. You know, I got something else going. Because you know, I can't go there, I can't be in that environment, it's going to mess me up if I do. You start making decisions about things, you know what, we're not going to have cable in our home, because if I have cable in my home, I'll sit around, I'll watch things all day, and I'll end up watching things I shouldn't be watching. And so you, you cut the cable. Everyone else thinks you're crazy. I remember we didn't have cable in my, one of my apartments, and the uh, Comcast or whatever, no offense to Comcast, they're nice people, but the guy called me up, and he said, hey, we're going to be in town, we can, we can put it in. And we're like, oh, my wife and I decided not to get it. The guy thought I was nuts. You decided not to get cable? I said, yeah, we decided not to get it, you know, this and that, and so on and so forth. This is the only day I'm going to be here. You're going to be calling me in a week. We'll be okay, my friend, don't worry. But he thought I was crazy. But you make that decision because you say, you know what, this is not going to be good for me, or whatever it may be, you set up these little walls here, but then as time goes on, a year goes on, a few years go on, now you have this, now you have that, and you begin to say, that's okay, we can do that, no big deal, we'll be on our guard there. And now there's a, there's a broken down wall over here, and a broken down wall over there, and a broken down wall over there, and the next thing you know, the enemy can come in anyway. And so my question is, have the walls which you previously designed to protect you in your faith begun to deteriorate? And have the guardrails been removed, setting you up, you or others up, for a devastating fall? If so, it's time to restore the walls in the city of your life. And by that, what I mean is establishing parameters once again of where you will and you will not go. And by that, what I mean is making decisions about what you will allow into your home and into your mind and into your heart. And no doubt, when you first came to the Lord, you did those things. But time has gone on. And a few stones here and there began to crumble. A gate was burned and you didn't do anything about it. And before long, the breaches became more than you can manage. And so you just gave up trying, like the children of Israel. You still go to church. You're still reading your Bible every now and again. You still pray here and there. And you're surviving. But you're certainly not thriving. And again, that's God's intense desire for each of us, is that we would thrive in our walks with him. Not that we would just get by. You remember Jeremiah 29? Everyone knows the verse. 
It says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It speaks there of giving you a future and a hope, not a dread and a fear, which is what the children of Israel have, not trouble and shame. The passage doesn't say, I know the plans I have for you, plans for you to squeak by and narrowly manage entrance into heaven. It doesn't say that. And I'm thankful that it doesn't. God wants us to thrive spiritually in the remaining days that we have here upon the earth. That we would have an intimacy of relationship with Him. That we would be used in the lives of others. That we would advance the kingdom of God. That we would see people come to know Him as a direct result of our influence in their lives. That's what God desires. Now you hear that and you say, great! Go ahead, Lord, do it. Well, it doesn't really work that way, does it? You see, you must present yourself before the Lord. You must go and rebuild those walls of separation and protection. And you must take the lead to walk in the way that God has prepared for you to walk. Those are the keys that lead us to our spiritually thriving in our walks with Him. And those are the things that we must be doing to keep ourselves from merely surviving and instead thriving as the Lord desires for us. Now, back to our story. Verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He sat down weeping and mourning for days. Now that seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Well, the walls are a little broken down. No big deal. There's construction going on all over the place. Seems a bit extreme. And in fact, what does Nehemiah really care in the first place? Nehemiah lives 800 miles away in one of the finest cities in the world. And Nehemiah, as we will see, is a pretty significant fellow in that city, the city of Susa, uh, and in the empire as a whole. Now, so surely, Nehemiah must have more important things to consider than some distant city that he had likely never even been to, and the vast majority of people that live in there that he doesn't even know. And so one would think he's got more important things to consider. But despite that, his heart was moved for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, for him, was important to God, and so it was important to him. And so he takes an immediate action, which in reality is quite extreme. He doesn't just sit down and feel bad for Jerusalem and its people. The the verse indicates that the strength of his legs failed him. Essentially, people say, oh, I've got to sit down because they're going to pass out or something like that or collapse. And the strength of his legs escaped him, forced him to sit down where he began to weep and to mourn over the city and its inhabitants. And Nehemiah, as we learn, will remain in that state for a period of days. And I think there's a valuable lesson there for us in the way that God works through his children. You see, God was about to do a great work through Nehemiah, but first God had to do a great work in Nehemiah. I think that's very significant for us. It's clear in the passage, it's clear in the story, that God had been working in Nehemiah's heart from the days of his childhood, given him a heart and a love for Jerusalem, and now he was going to combine that heart with the need and create for Nehemiah a calling. And so we have this formula that is this. It's heart plus need equals calling. And the calling would occur only when Nehemiah's heart was sufficiently stirred to meet the need. I mean, let's be honest. 
You look around outside of you here or whatever in our society that we live in, there's a gazillion needs that we could meet, right? You could, you could just wander down the street. You would never have to go to another job again. If somehow you could get money uh, to feed your family by just wandering streets, you could meet needs, meet needs all day. There's a gazillion needs that are out there. And so you have to ask yourself, well, which of those needs should I address? Which of those should you pour yourself into? And that is where the heart comes in, where God lays it so heavily upon you that nothing else would do. And when that happens, the only thing that remains for you is the opportunity. And so again, the formula that I shared is heart plus need equals calling, but calling plus opportunity equals ministry. And Nehemiah is now about to get that opportunity. So as I said in the beginning of our study, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And throughout our study of the book of these 13 chapters, we're going to see 13 prayers that are listed for us uh, of the words that Nehemiah shared as he was going before the Lord. Different prayers for the different circumstances that he was facing. And here now in chapter 1, we come to the first of those prayers. It starts in verse 5, and it's the first recorded prayer in the book. We're not going to be able to get through all of the prayer today, so we'll look at a portion of the prayer this morning. Starting in verse 5, it said, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not, commit, we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, Nehemiah, he begins his prayer with a statement about who God is. So notice in verse 5 that he refers to God as the great an awesome God. King James uses the word for awesome there. It, it replaces it with the word terrible. So the great and terrible God. And it's a term, whether it's awesome or terrible, it's a term which means the one that is to be feared. It means to stand in all love, or to honor and reverence and respect. And Nehemiah begins this prayer by putting everything sort of in its proper place. And he says, God, you are great and terrible and awesome and we are not. And to be honest, the very reason the people found themselves in this trouble, this dilemma that they're in, first a captivity and now uh, living in these unwalled, this unwalled city, is because they had forgotten this fact. They had forgotten that God is holy. They, are, they had forgotten that God is a man of His Word, quote-unquote. They had forgotten that as a holy God, that He takes sin seriously. And so Nehemiah begins by reminding himself of the need to approach God in proper humility and in awe and in reverence. And humility begins, and that's how we're going to begin our season of prayer, 
But humility begins by recognizing that there is one who sits enthroned in heaven and that it's not you and it's not me. And so he reminds himself of who God is. The second thing he does is he reminds God of who he, of who he is, who God himself is. God, this is who you are, he reminds him. So look also in verse 5, he says, uh, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So despite the fact that God is awesome and terrible and greatly to be feared and reverenced, God is not a dictatorial despot who is prone to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Rather, God, the God that we're dealing with, is a covenant-keeping God. Or as I said earlier, he is a man of his word. And that speaks to the character of God. And it's based on God's character that Nehemiah appeals to God to hear his prayer. You see in verse 6 he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Nehemiah doesn't come to the Lord and say, Hey, listen up, because I'm worthy to be listened to. Nehemiah doesn't come to the Lord and say, You know what, God, you owe me. I went to church this weekend, so you owe me a listen, or anything like that. He comes to God and he says, God, listen to my prayer based on the fact that you said you would listen to my prayer or our prayer if the people come. You recall that it was God who appeared to King Solomon and said this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their land. God is the one who said it. It was God who was speaking through Moses uh, in Leviticus 26. Also in Deuteronomy Chapter 4, Leviticus 26 says through Moses, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and the treachery that they committed against me, and also walking contrary to me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and with Abraham, and I will remember their land. If they do this, I will do that. And so God tells us to do it. He says multiple times that if the people will humble themselves and pray, that he would hear and he would respond. Now, is that any different from today? That's an easy one, guys. No, it's no different from today. And so as we come together during this season of prayer, not just as individuals, but as a gathering of believers, and we come together and we humble ourselves and we pray, and we put God in His proper place and we put us in our proper place, can't we simply say, you know what, I know God will hear, I know that God will listen, and I know that God will respond, and so we're going to do that, and we're going to test God in this. We're going to come to Him in humility and in repentance, and in brokenness, and we're going to cry out to him to heal our land. And we believe that he will. Now, Nehemiah, he points to some statements about the character of God as proof that if the people come to him now, that the result will be the same, that he'll listen. I think another thing that those verses, same verses, indicate about Nehemiah is it indicates his complete dependence on God. Now, Nehemiah was a smart man. He was a brilliant man. Nehemiah could have received information from these guys from Jerusalem. He could have gone into his office. He could have developed all sorts of schemes and plans to see to it that the walls would get rebuilt. He'd find ways to get the money. He'd find ways to get permission. He could have sat down. He could have done all of those things. But by turning to God in prayer here, in the way that he does, what Nehemiah demonstrates is this, a reality that if this job is ever going to get done, it's going to have to be because God went before them that the task before them is too daunting 
that the walls of the city have lied in ruin for 150 years, that the opposition that were around the Jewish people was too strong. And so he demonstrates a complete dependence on God here, and he does so through prayer. And prayer is essential for godly leadership. I read this quote from David Gusick. It said, if prayer isn't absolutely necessary to accomplish your vision, then your goal is not big enough. And I appreciate that. And conversely, if the only way to accomplish the vision that is in your heart is for God to accomplish it through you, then you obviously must pray. And Nehemiah was a man that had a grand plan, a plan that God had prepared for him to accomplish. But if it would not, I should say, be accomplished as the result of the work of his own flesh. Nehemiah's wisdom, Nehemiah's energy, Nehemiah's resources were not going to be enough to get this job accomplished. And so for that reason, Nehemiah is an excellent example for us of a godly leader. As we see in just the first couple of verses of this opening chapter, he rightly knows who God is, great and awesome. He correctly establishes who he is, humble and fully dependent. And then finally, he becomes a man of prayer. And as we will see when we come to it in our next study, the prayer that he prays is actually a period of prayer. Some churches might call it a season of prayer that is going to last four months, or is only going to last a month unless the Lord leads further. But his prayer, Nehemiah's prayer, is actually going to last for a period of about four months as he's going before the Lord. And that brings me to the final point that I want to make in our study today about his leadership, and that is that Nehemiah waits upon God. Again, there's a gazillion needs that need to be met, right? Which ones do we need? Well, which one has the Lord burdened your heart that you can't live another day unless you meet that particular need? And so we wait upon the Lord. Uh, and then the second point of that is, though, we wait for his timing. Nehemiah was willing to be used by God, but he was not willing to get ahead of God. And so he waits. Well, that's all the time that we're going to have to study this. So we're going to have to end sort of in the middle of this prayer, and we'll pick it up next time we're together. But before we close today, don't close that Bible. Don't close that Bible. I'm teasing. But before we close today, I just want to make one final point. And that is this, that an important thing to kind of tuck in the back of your mind throughout our study is that Nehemiah was a layman. And what I mean by that is he was not a professional priest or a professional religious leader as Zerubbabel and Joshua were. Uh, or Ezra. He wasn't a political figure, um, like Zerubbabel in particular, but he was just a regular guy that worked a regular job that the Lord used to accomplish one of the most amazing accomplishments in all of Scripture. And I have to tell you, I really like that. I think it's very sad when the ministry becomes professionalized. And what I mean by that is that the only ones that feel qualified to do the work of the ministry are the so-called professionals. So the only ones that follow the burden that the Lord is laying on their heart are the so-called professionals. So the only ones that step out and actually do anything are the professionals. It's not meant to be that way. God has called all of us to participate in the work. And God burdens all of us, and quite frankly, many times the most effective quote-unquote ministers are regular guys and gals, so to speak. The ones that go to work each day and they interact each day with the common man. And so I'll close today 
common man, and I'm in that, I think I'm in that crowd, by asking, what does God burden you to do? And what are you going to do about it? You see, the work of the Lord is immense. And the burden is beyond what any of us can accomplish individually or in our flesh. But together, as each of us follow the leading of the Lord and we uh, impact the sphere of people that we come in contact with, as we're relying on the Lord to burden us and direct us and to accomplish His purposes, that which previously seemed impossible, impossible becomes possible. And so, layman, I pray for you, as I pray for myself, is that God would use us as we go into our grocery store. I remember I went into I was a teacher back then, I think, and I went into a local grocery store and I saw Lindsay, who's running our sound table right now. And I just, I actually, I was very honest. She said, how are you doing? I said, I'm grumpy today. And she said, you're never grumpy. And I said, oh, today I am. You know, but it was just an opportunity to minister. God wants to use us in every sphere of our lives. And I, I just pray, I, I just, can I share one last story? We've got one minute. I'll share one last story. I remember when Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa uh, sort of had like its explosion where thousands of people were coming every night of the week and lots of people were getting saved. People from all over the world began to travel there, particularly America, seminary folks and so on, because they wanted to learn a secret. What's the secret? You know, kids are walking away from, from God and godly things and they're becoming hippies and doing all kinds of crazy stuff and yet you guys got thousands of people here every single night. What's the secret? And Pastor Chuck Smith at the time, he said, well, I don't know. The Lord is blessing. He said, no, come on. It's got to be more than that. You know, do you have committees? Do you have this? Do you have that? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? He said, no, we don't have any committee. Well, he said, we have one committee. He said, we have an evangelism committee. And they said, I knew it. That's the secret. You know, and how many people sit on the committee? He said, 3,000. He said, everyone that comes is on the evangelism committee. He said, people are just excited about their faith and they're sharing their faith with those they encounter and they're bringing folks with them and people are getting saved. And I, and I believe that's really what God wants to do. That he wants to use us in the normalcy of the daily to direct other people to a Savior. We're just sheep informing other sheep where the good food is to eat. And that's the Lord Jesus, the bread of life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for your love for us. And we thank you for your work in our lives, Lord. What a blessing it is to, to have an intimacy of relationship with you. Lord, to go through our lives on a daily basis just in communion with you and communication with you. Lord, to bring to you, Lord, the joyous moments and to bring to you the sad. Lord, when we're uh, apprehensive. And Lord, when we're excited to move forward and we want to accomplish every task that is before us, Lord, to just be in communion with you and to have your spirit speak into our lives, Lord the blessing of relationship. And Father, we know that sin hinders that. And Lord, your desire is that nothing might hinder that closeness of relationship. Your Son informed us that you are our Father, and we can refer to you in that way. And so, Father, we pray for wisdom. We pray for courage. We pray for the conviction of your Spirit on our hearts. Lord, that you would just put heavy upon us decisions, perhaps, that we need to make. Lord, about the way that we're walking with you, the parameters that we've established, Lord, perhaps the looseness, which is having a negative effect on us. But certainly we know that we are in the world and we want to win people to Jesus. But Lord, we know that we're not of the world as well. And so there's that tricky balance that is played there. And Lord, we know certainly that you can help us to navigate that. And so Father, we dedicate this study this coming uh, couple of months and we just pray for a powerful outpouring of your Spirit on our hearts, that you would speak and you'd convict and you'd be our teacher. We present ourselves, Lord, bare before you. 
and we lay ourselves on your altar as living sacrifices. Lord, transform us from within, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.